Welcome to The Future Strategist. Today, my guest is friend and co-author, Ali Hagstrom. Ali, how are you doing? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. I'm very glad to be here with you. Uh, thank you. Uh, could you please introduce yourself and uh, tell listeners your background? Well, uh, as you said, my name is Ole Hagstrom. I'm a professor of mathematical statistics uh, at Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg, Sweden. I used to be like a kind of a mainstream mathematician, but uh, I was gradually drawn to what I thought were the most uh, crucial issues uh, for humanity. And uh, at the, the current situation seems to be that AI is of unique importance to what is happening right now and might determine the rest of our future. Yeah, I think both of us got drawn into the field. I was going to be doing uh, game theory models of law and economics for my academic career. And then just what AGI could do to us to help or hurt just seems so much more important that I kind of gave up on what I was doing and just started doing uh, the best I could with AI risk. Could you position yourself for listeners and, and what you think? Like, how bad of a situation do you think we're in? How long do you think it'll be before we get a computer superintelligence? Do you want to go faster, slower? Yes. Uh, I was one of the signatories of the Future of Life Institute uh, open letter uh, that came out uh, one or two weeks ago, which called for a six-month pause in tr the training of the uh, largest uh, AI models. Uh, so I think we should go slower, that the current situation is very dangerous. I don't really think that the the proposal of the letter will realistically come to, to play out, uh, but I think that uh, it has helped raise the issues about AI risk. You asked about timelines, and I've been thinking off and on about these things for, for more than a decade, and uh, I always thought that this is decades away. I mean, at least 20, 30 years. And that helped me uh, think about it more abstractly, more distantly. Uh, but now with the very, very rapid uh, developments uh, that has happened in large language models and related generative AI technologies, my timelines have shrunk. And now I don't feel that uh, I'm any longer in a position to say confidently that the singularity will not happen in 2024. I mean, I don't predict that it will happen uh, next year or even in the next uh, three to five years. I, I, but I think that there is reasonable, prob sufficient probability that something like this will happen that we need to take it seriously. So, I, I would be curious to hear what, what you think about timelines. I I mean, I, I also think that it, it might be very, very near that. I think the key is going to be once the best computer programmers are AIs, mm -hmm. then we'll be taking humans out of the loop in terms of algorithm design. They can program themselves and, and get better and better at a potentially an exponential rate. Um, 
I, I mean, this, I'm not sure how solid my understanding of this is, but my suspicion is that sort of algorithm space is huge and we've only explored a tiny quadrant of it, a tiny portion of it. So if we had, if AI, we had really cheap, high quality computer programmers that, that were AIs, they could just do this massive search and get something much, much better than we currently have. And this, this is, maybe this isn't certain, but I mean, the analogy is like we're, we're looking for treasure and there's this giant field and we've explored a tiny part of it and we found some really impressive treasure and we have no reason to think that there's there isn't even better treasure on the rest of the field. And yes. we're, our current treasure is about to help us quickly look at a lot of the other fields. So we should expect huge chance that we're going to have far more than we do right now. And I think it could come within a year. Yeah, uh, I think that's uh, that's uh, an interesting argument and uh, a neat uh, analogy. Uh, I think that we cannot be certain of this. Well, I am certain that there are much, much better algorithms elsewhere in the uh, space of, of computer programs that we haven't seen yet. But it could also, since the space is so high dimensional, it could be exponentially difficult uh, to find these um, this needle in the haystack and and so I think it's still plausible that things will uh, settle down on a lower level but I mean we should uh, prepare for anything yeah I mean I I think that the high dimensionality means that finding the best algorithms that could be a billion years away but finding things much better than we currently have just by, you know, brute force searching or, you know, whatever kind of better searching smarter AIs could do, that we should assign a high probability to. Yes, that makes sense. And where do you come down on the idea that if we create a super intelligence, it will probably be friendly to us, probably destroy us, maybe torture us? Uh, I'm still with the uh, default a scenario uh, being pessimistic, uh, you know the what Elsie uh, Yudkovsky described as the AI doesn't hate you nor does it love you, but you are made of atoms that it can be uh, that it can use for something else. But that's if we fail to take AI alignment uh, seriously. AI alignment being the project of making sure that the first super intelligent machine or the machine that gets the singularity going, so to speak, uh, has um, has values and uh, uh, drives and objectives that are uh, strongly in line with human welfare and all the stuff that we value. But that's a very, very hard uh, project, and and we have made less progress than uh, uh, than one might have hoped. I mean, the field has expanded over the last ten years uh, quite uh, drastically. It's still small compared to AI as a whole, but 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 it has gotten bigger. So there are at least a few hundred people working full time on on AI alignment now. But no one seems to be really near uh, a, a clear 
solution to the problem. So I'm nervous that this could end in uh, uh, humanity destroying disaster. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers, I mean, you're right, there are probably a few hundred people working on alignment and what, maybe 100,000 people working on AI capacity research. Yes. I, I mean, we basically have to be really lucky that the whatever mathematical laws of the universe make alignment vastly easier than it seems now. Yes. And this has caused me to change my mind about uh, AI governance or AI politics a bit. Uh, I have a book in Swedish from 2021, two years ago, Tänk and the Maschiner, Thinking Machines, where I describe all the risk scenarios and uh, all kinds of other AI issues. And then in the final chapter, I tell the reader that given all these terrible uh, risk scenarios, uh, the reader might be tempted to... to uh, think that we ought to pull the brakes here and uh, halt or at least slow down AI development. And I say that that is totally naive. Uh, there are so strong economic and other forces uh, that uh, that drives this development that there's really no stopping that. So we should instead thinking about trying to steer a little bit uh, in favorable directions for instance, by by increasing the fraction of, of AI development that goes into alignment rather than just capabilities. So that's what I said two years ago. And I still think that it's a, a huge challenge to 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 slow down this uh, crazy uh, dynamics. Uh, but uh, the urgency of the situation and my relative pessimism. I haven't given up on AI alignment, but I, I see that this is a very hard task. And I don't think that the task of um, making the right political moves to slow down AI development is obviously more difficult. So we should try on all fronts. And that's why I've changed my mind and uh, signed this uh, FLI open letter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the political case is so hard to make, especially since some of the, the top people in, in AI development are like, oh, no, we don't have to worry about alignment. Yeah, I, I mean, Jan LeCun uh, is uh, yeah. <laughs> probably the most uh, out, outrageously dismissive uh, person. And here. he's the top AI person at, at Meta at Facebook. Yes, but they are kind of like, I don't know, maybe the fifth best AI lab or something like that. Uh, and uh, it could be more relevant to look at what Sam Altman says, who is CEO of uh, OpenAI. Mm -hmm. And he is not dismissive uh, on, on, on that level of AI alignment. He, I mean, he admits the risks and, and uh, speaks uh, very fluently, says all, all the right uh, buzzwords in AI alignment uh, and so on. But nevertheless, they are pushing ahead quite aggressively. So there's a discrepancy between his talk and and uh, what they're doing that uh, that I'm really concerned about. I mean, the cynical take on Sam Altman, and I agree he does say the right things. I, I heard him on the Lex Friedman podcast. The cynical take, though, is that he wants to slow down his rivals 
by saying it's dangerous, so we'll regulate, and regulations often used by incumbents to slow down rivals. The non-cynical take is he looks and says, my people are the best, we're six months ahead. It's actually safer for the world if we were the ones who create the first AI. We've got a slightly better chance of saving the world than the, the runner-ups do. But anyone can make that argument, and we don't have want to have lots of players that each uh, makes the same argument that the world is safer if we get there first. Yeah. Because that that creates exactly the race dynamic that I think we desperately want to avoid. I think it's quite clear from the releases of of uh, uh, ChatGPT and uh, Bing Chat and so on that they have pressure to release uh, these products earlier than they ideally would have wanted to, given their ambitions in, in aligning these products. You know how they really don't want um, ChatGPT to say racist things right. or to provide instructions for criminal activities and so on. And yet it's so easy for users to, to jailbreak it uh, and, and, and do these things. Yeah, I mean, if we can't stop it from saying naughty words, how are we going to, you know, align it at a deeper level? It's just... Right. I mean, we were failing at an easy task. You know, you're going to fail at the harder task. I guess, I mean, there's a faint, faint hope somewhere that things will get uh, easier uh, as uh, AI approach, approaches superintelligence, that there will be some kind of convergence uh, towards uh, following some uh, uh, objectively correct uh, uh, ethics or something like that. But I think that that is, to me, that seems not totally impossible, but relatively far-fetched. Yeah, I agree. I, I think one of our best hopes might be that AI that's more advanced than we have now becomes just extremely trusted that, you know, it's like with a calculator. If you disagree yeah. with a calculator, you've probably made a mistake. It becomes trusted and it tells us, hey, look, on the current course, you're going to kill yourselves. And that generates the political will to just shut it down. Ah, that's an interesting suggestion. I, I haven't heard that one before. So... I mean, under this scenario, the, to prepare for it, basically the U.S. and China should be trying to get along as well as we can. So mm -hmm. if we get this message from AI and our elite tech elites say, yeah, it's going to probably kill us, that we can have political cooperation. We're, of course, doing the exact opposite with Ukraine and Taiwan. But Yeah, it seems that U.S.-China relations are not the best at the present moment. Yeah. That's... That's uh, yet another concern here. Yeah, and then the arms race aspect of it said if we slow down efforts in the United States, that China will just take over and yeah. better dead uh, than the Chinese run their AI and control the world, I guess. Yeah. I was on uh, Swedish public radio uh, just uh, an hour uh, prior to this uh, recording, and I described the... Uh, risk situation in approximately the terms we have been covering here so far. And uh, afterwards, they spoke to Erik Slotner, who is Swedish Minister of 
infrastructure or something. Uh, and he responded to the uh, AI pause idea uh, by just dismissing it and, 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 and saying that this is impossible. Uh, technology moves forward. We have to flow along. And uh, if we don't, then China will just uh, overtake us. And I think that this is uh, a very, very common attitude and we have to find ways to find uh, political leaders and others uh, to think more outside the box here, to think of the situation not as a zero-sum game, but uh, uh, a possible positive uh, sum game where collaboration helps. Yeah. No, I agree. And it's possible that our best hope really is the Chinese leadership. I mean, it's run by engineers. They probably, the leaders of China have a much better understanding of AI than the political leaders of the United States do. They, at least the stereotype is that the Chinese political leaders think in the very long term, and I'm sure yeah. they don't want to die. So it could be in a few years, they're like, hey, look, this is going to kill us all. And the, it's the Chinese government that organizes a slowdown. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an interesting idea. I mean, my experience with engineers in general, and I feel very free to say this because uh, actually my undergraduate degree is in, in electrical engineering, is that engineers are certainly no better than people in general at uh, thinking sanely about uh, these kinds of ideas. Okay, that's that's bad news. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It could be it could be different in uh, in China, but uh, uh, I'm, I don't feel certain about that. Yeah, an analogy I like is if we just think of the Cold War, that the technology of hydrogen bombs and intercontinental ballistic missiles, it currently has you know all the major cities in U.S., China, and Russia have hydrogen bombs pointed at them. That's truly insane from the point of view of our species. And yet, that's what technology led to, if you don't cooperate. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the sort of view that technology goes on and we should just sort of let it, you, you have to basically say the Cold War was okay. Well, I mean, there was always the chance of Error, and I think yeah. we were quite lucky to to survive the Cold War. I think that's definitely true. I mean, you could, I think, if you know, knowing what we don't know now, we should have assigned probably more than a fifty percent chance that at least a billion people would have been killed by hydrogen bombs. Yes, and uh, the uh, the survivors, the rest of uh, civilization, would uh, have a struggle coping with. Uh, nuclear winter and so on yeah you crash agriculture destroy trade routes i mean yeah yeah we, we could easily gone back to the stone age yes and uh, if we had spoken last year uh, i would maybe have pointed to uh, putin's invasion of ukraine and his uh, um, not so subtly uh, articulated threats of, of uh, uh, using nuclear as the main cause of, of um, uh, concern for nuclear war 
at present time. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that risk is still with us. Uh, but I think that the dynamics uh, with, if extreme things start happening uh, in the AI sphere, we could see nuclear wars, uh, a nuclear war breaking out uh, on those grounds. I, I agree, especially, I mean, so much of computer hardware is made in Taiwan yeah. that, I mean, that's just become far more valuable. And it was already tension. And now, you know, it's just going to be tempting for the, the Chinese government to try to conquer Taiwan. And of course, we're less, the U.S. is less likely to let them have it. Yeah. Because of uh, the computer chip factories. Right. Uh, but I see very little discussion of, uh, of that aspect in uh, media reporting over the Taiwan issue. Or is it different in the U.S.? Um, you know, in my Twitter bubble, people do connect it, but it's very – I don't think the general news media people are talking about that, the chip factories in Taiwan, but I'm not really sure. So there's another connection between uh, nuclear bombs – on the AI development uh, that I wanted to bring up with you. Sure. Uh, and that's uh, an analogy between the release of GPT-4 and the, uh, was it called the Trinity test? The first uh, uh, nuclear explosion that they tried in the New Mexico desert. Uh, I, think, in, I think it was that. I'm not sure, but I, I think yes, so. Yes, in, in July 1945. So prior to uh, to that test, there were some discussions among uh, the physicists uh, at Los Alamos about the theoretical possibility that the heat from the nuclear explosion would cause a, a chain reaction uh, in, involving nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere, a chain reaction that might put the entire atmosphere on fire. So they had a group with, um, what's his name, Edward Teller, mm -hmm. and a couple of other of the physicists working on, the, on that problem, and they produced a report prior to the Trinity test, where they said that it seems that uh, uh, a chain uh, reaction is unlikely here, and even more unlikely that it would continue propagating unboundedly. Uh, but uh, the final sentence of the report is that given the nature of our model assumptions uh, and the lack of direct empirical evidence, we feel that this, this issue calls for further research. And I think that, I mean, it's quite shocking how they could on that information, uh, where they couldn't express this certainty about not igniting the atmosphere, how they, how they went on and and blew up the bomb anyway. It's 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 quite shocking. And there's a sentence uh, in the technical report uh, that OpenAI released together with, with the release of, of, of GPT-4 where they look at the possibility of... So they have made various tests to check the uh, GPT-4's uh, tendency and ability to act uh, 
autonomously and use social manipulation and maybe at some point start reproducing itself and gather resources and so on. The kind of nightmare scenario that we think might lead to, to an AI takeover. And, and, and after discussing this for a bit, they say this is uh, GPT-4 probably does not have these capabilities, but the issue deserves further research. <laughs> so it's like an echo of, of, of uh, the Los Alamos report in 1945. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, this makes me wonder, did they put that sentence in on purpose to, to like to wake us up to the seriousness of the situation? Maybe they have some, some uh, subtle whistleblower in there who got this sentence into the report or what is going on? I don't yeah, know. That, that is interesting. I mean, another analogy is that what the Trinity test did was it, it showed the world it's possible to build atomic bombs. The laws of physics allow it. And that of course drew a lot of investment in, from the Soviet union into it. And it's the same with chat GPT, like, Oh, look what you can do. This is possible. Yeah. So, huge amount i'm sure of venture capital funding and lots of companies are, are probably shifted to putting a lot of money into this yeah um and uh well it's very uh important i think to to think about the the race dynamics here mm -hmm. and uh i i I don't have a full understanding of, of these issues, but it seems to me that openness uh, about what is happening uh, triggers uh, competitors to, to move forward uh, at a faster rate, inspired by what the first actor does and so on. And therefore, I don't share the concern that, that many mainstream AI people have that um, open AI is not living up to its original ambition of, of, of being open with what they're doing. Uh, I think that the, the more closed they are, the better. The best thing would be that if they hadn't uh, released GPT-4 at all, I think, uh, because then they play less into this uh, race dynamic. But you're the economist here, so maybe you can correct me if I'm naive about oh, something here. Uh, no, no, I, I agree with you that if you, you disseminate how you did something, other mm -hmm. people will, they don't have to waste resources doing following other paths, and they know they don't have to waste resources following other paths. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we will we'll get less... Well, I mean, the worst thing would be if OpenAI did as much innovation as they could and then released it to everybody. Yeah. Although, a I mean, this isn't really a danger, but what's scary is that given that OpenAI is not releasing everything, we don't know how far along they are. I mean, right. what, how close are they uh, to obsoleting all computer programmers? What do they have they haven't released? I, I don't, you know, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if they're like, well, we need to, we need a lot more funding for the next level. So let's get way ahead. We'll release stuff that's, you know, a year behind what we have. So we'll maintain our lead. But what we release will allow Microsoft to, you know, give us $50 billion or whatever for funding. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it's it's harder to predict where we are. I'm wondering also about how this focus uh, that they have on um, uh, AIs that can do computer programming, uh, how this came about. Is this something they actually uh, accidentally discovered from the early GPTs and thought it was really cool and, and uh, wanted to push on? Or is it something that they want to do because uh, they understand the, the basic um, self-improvement spiral mechanism that is uh, assumed to be the trigger of the singularity and they want to achieve that? Is that part of their thinking? Um, because, uh, I mean, both you and I are, are uh, very nervous about the consequences of a singularity. And if one wants to be careful and avoid a singularity, I can hardly think of anything that would be worse to build than uh, AIs that can uh, program. Yeah. I'm guessing if you think your organization's strength is that you've got the best programmers in the world, then you increase that if you automate lower-level programming. Yeah, that's a that comp- That's a complement to the top programmers. Yeah. So, and and plus, I have to imagine as programmers themselves, it would they'd have an advantage in figuring out how to push their products to automating programming, and to giving them the tools that are best for them. Yeah. So I guess it's it's simply the case that once they discovered that this was a possible avenue, there were so strong market forces pushing in this direction or incentives, yeah. uh, commercial incentives, that uh, they pretty much had to go this way. Yeah. Or it it could be something about the structure of language that if you can figure out human language and predict then you're thinking at a level good enough to do at least basic programming. Mm-hmm. And that's why humans can program. You know, evolution obviously didn't select us to be good at programming. Not specifically. Obviously, it's selected for something that uh, uh, created a, a, an ability to program as a side effect. Yeah. But you think that's that's language or I, somewhere within the language sphere? I mean... There's the evolutionary theory that we were sort of in an, we got more intelligent through sexual competition with other humans. And part of that was through language. So evolution might have been selecting for people who were very clever with their use of language. And that, that could have been what gave some people the ability to program that sort of logical structure of language translated over. But let's just a guess. Yes. And they always warn us, the biologists, about being cautious uh, about uh, these kinds of just so stories that seem to fit because it's uh, you need more more solid arguments to really understand the causal mechanisms here yes although if if chat gpt these language models could figure out programming on their own that would be the evidence but we we don't know that it might have been they might have put a lot of effort into causing them to be decent at programming Mm -hmm. What surprises me is I, I would think like Microsoft and OpenAI would say we're not going to release the programming parts, that we're going to keep that for ourselves so we can upgrade our own you know, software. And we won't let rivals have access to that. 
Yes. I think that would be the, the way to generate the most wealth. Maybe there's something on open air is we don't, you know, we, we do want at least the results to be to spread throughout the world. So we don't want to hoard the programming ability and they're not sufficiently afraid of a bad singularity that, you know, they're going to keep the programming stuff to themselves. Or maybe they think that this um, approach is so obvious that if they don't do it, then Google will do it and they will get to the market first. Yeah, that's one of my not solutions, but one of the helps. I think that Microsoft, Google and OpenAI should all merge. It uh-huh. would probably increase their profits. Monopolies usually do. Yes. And then they wouldn't have as much arms race dynamics. They're, they'd probably estimate, you know, maybe a year or two ahead of everyone else. So maybe OpenAI is six months ahead of Google. That puts more pressure on than if this merged entity figured we're a couple of years ahead. So this suggestion, I, I, I think it sounds interesting, but doesn't it go straight against the more common political discourse that uh, these companies are so large and so powerful that that uh, the government should somehow oh. force them to break apart? Yeah, it definitely does. I thought the political argument to make is that is China, that China's beating, they're not, but we'll say China's beating us. Look at TikTok. We need to merge our top companies to make a superstar company to take on China. And then the other, you know, for people like us, it would be we got to slow down the AI arms race. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we could, you know, big tech has so much money that if you could get them to support the merger, you'll have a lot of political donations flowing. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's an interesting concept. Do you know if anyone other than you is thinking about this? Nope, and my tweets on this have not gone anywhere near viral, so it hasn't really. But <laughs> oh, maybe after thinking carefully about it, I will try help uh, help retweet. Okay, thanks. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't have that many followers, so so it's just a drop in the ocean, maybe. Yeah. Uh, this is interesting. Do you have a clear view of how far behind uh, China is? I I really don't. I mean, I, I there was an article that I forgot where, but why China didn't develop these language models, and it's they're they're really careful about AI and language in China because you know here we don't want people to say racist things, but if you know if, if a model does, it's just a little bad. But yeah. If you get like in China, you're a company and they, they insult the Chinese Communist Party. That's you don't tolerate that risk. Oh. So China was at a natural dis- Chinese companies were at a natural disadvantage in language models because they have to be very, very careful. Uh-huh. And so yes. I don't know if the leadership will change and say, look, because of this. All right. We, we get your AIs are going to occasionally say nasty things about the Chinese Communist Party. You won't go to prison if that happens. Just tell us the user is trying to do that, but we won't destroy you if it's your company. And I don't know if they're willing to make that change or not. And how about the hardware situation? That I, I know even less about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that the U.S. basically went to economic war against China with chip manufacturing, and we don't let U.S. executives, U.S. citizens work for Chinese chip companies, we put a lot of pressure on Europe. 
I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine gave the U.S. lots of political leverage over Europe, and I think we've used it to say to Europe, don't help China make computer chips. So China, I think, is trying to create their own chip industry, so they'll probably be behind, but who knows if they'll end up stronger than they otherwise would have. Right. So I think we've short-term really harmed China's hardware situation, but... There's obviously a lot of good engineers in China. And, you know. So one thing I've been saying about China in the local uh, Swedish debate, I mean, I don't want to overemphasize the importance of Sweden here. We're really a, a fringe player, nowhere near the the um, biggest uh, AI companies in, in terms of. But you are uh, a superstar in terms of AI risk. It's, it's kind of weird, right? If you look at the top people over the last 15 years and AI risk, Sweden is way up there. Yes, but, so, but we've exported all the best uh, people like um, uh, Nick Bostrom and uh, yeah. Max Tegmark, uh, Anders Sundberg and so on. So yeah. it's, uh, it's more of a desert over here. But uh, what I wanted to, to get to uh, was that um, the, uh, I was recently involved in an argument in, in one of the leading newspapers. Uh, and um, again, this argument about uh, uh, China overtaking us uh, was, was put against me. If, if we take a, if we uh, implement a pause, then, then the China will move forward. And I said that, now you are just um, uh, taking for granted that uh, Chinese tech companies will be less interested than American tech tech companies in uh, saving the world from and cooperating around uh, preventing an AI apocalypse. And uh, it seems not very constructive to just take for granted that they would not cooperate around something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, China was the enemy to the U.S. And then in, under Bill Clinton in the 1990s, we sort of became friends and now we're back to being enemies with them. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, I think that should be a political priority is to get along with China right now. Uh, how is uh, U.S. Uh, internal politics uh, affecting this? Is there a pressure on politic politicians to play tough uh, uh, against China? Yeah, very much, very much so. China and Russia are the official enemies right now. Yeah. So, yeah, being soft on either is is damaging. And what would happen if uh, Donald Trump got back to presidency? Or is that so unlikely now that we can? No, it's it's much more likely than it was a few months ago. Uh, I he's weird where he's like I'm the toughest person ever on China, but I'm also so charismatic that I can get the Chinese leaders to like me and do what I say. So I don't know if he'd want to do anything better, but he could because he has that he could project toughness to his supporters and say I made a deal, but they accepted because they knew if they didn't, they would be in big trouble. So I don't know. <laughs> Someone could convince him this was, a, I don't know if that's possible, but if they could convince him we need to deal with China, he'd have more political freedom, I think, than Joe Biden would. 
I don't really want to put my hopes to to Donald Trump. <laughs> I can uh, understand that one. Yeah, uh, that th- that would be a sign that we are really, really in trouble. <laughs> yes. Well, at some point we may have to hope for high variance outcomes. If like God, something really weird has to happen, or we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 I mean. I mean, basic thermodynamics says that if you just mess things up, uh, things will go worse. I mean, yeah. that's that's a default. So you have to have some some plan for how how the situation might be different in this respect. Yeah, yeah, that is that is true. I don't know. I mean, do you want to give odds? Like, what do you think the chances are? humanity will survive another 50 years well if we were to bet i would bet on humanity's survival but that's just because <laughs> if if i lose i won't be around to to have to make uh, payments so it's a somewhat harder issue to um, um i mean economists like to to interpret uh, subjective probabilities in terms of, of willingness to bet. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we would have to make a thought experiment that you and I were sitting on a cloud somewhere off, uh, off the planet or, 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 uh, in a, in a, in a different universe with, with the possibility to inspect what's going on here. And if we imagine such a scenario, uh, and you're asking for the probability I attach to doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that within a, a specific time frame, or uh, say the next fifty years? Yes. Um, so just just a couple of years ago, uh, I, I was mostly with Toby Ward's estimate of the probability of doom in this century being something like one in six. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in Russian roulette, and and out of those seventeen percent, he assigned ten percent uh, from uh, artificial intelligence catastrophe. And I was kind of in 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 that league, and uh, just over the last year, uh, I have. Um, uh, increased my estimates uh, of the probability of such a catastrophe. Uh, I'm reluctant to give an exact number, but it's certainly in the several tenths of percentage points. Okay. Are you over 50% doom? Um, I'm not sure I'm psychologically <laughs> ready to say it, but but now that you ask me, maybe I am. I mean, I think we are in deep, deep trouble. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm over fifty percent myself. Yes. And it's, it's sort of hard to take it. It's weird. I, you know, we're, we're both teachers, and I used to look at my students with envy of their age because they yes. have the full lives ahead of them, and, you know, now it's sort of like pity. It's like, whoa, I got to live, you know, mostly a full life, and you all won't get, probably won't get that. Yeah, and and uh, you have a child, uh, and I don't, and I yeah. assume that that contributes to the psychology here. Yeah, 
kind of happy at this point that I don't have children I need to worry about. At the same time, I also look at my parents who are now uh, 80 with some envy. I feel that they were probably born in the perfect moment in history. Mm -hmm. I'm not totally dissatisfied with my own position. I mean, I've lived to become 55 and I've lived through some of the most exciting years of, of, of human history and uh, had a good life. So even if the world would end tomorrow, I wouldn't have that much to complain about. Mm -hmm. um, this conversation has taken a really dark turn, I think. Yeah. Um, should we try to figure out reasons for optimism oh i think the bet this is not for humanity but for individuals mm -hmm. that there's a really asymmetric outcome i mean if it goes poorly we die um if it goes well you could live as long as you want i mean from a purely selfish viewpoint i'd take even a 10 percent chance of getting to live as long as i want for you know chance of death if that doesn't happen immediate death aha uh -huh. you you want to maximize expected longevity or even if it's not maximizing, even if I'm risk averse over longevity, like I could, you know, being able to live for millions of years, that's mm -hmm. worth a 10% chance of that is worth taking off 20 years of my life if that 10% probability didn't work out. Yeah. Uh, my wife is uh, more of a normie uh, than you and I, and, and, and she listens patiently when I bring up this type of discussions. And at one point she said that, all right, if, if you go ahead with this radical life extension and uh, this is what plays out, I, I can uh, uh, I can stay married to you for 100 years, but uh, <laughs> no more. <laughs> That's kind of reasonable. I mean, <laughs> she certainly didn't sign up for, you know, yeah. for a million years of you. So, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. a, a very, when you stand there in the church and saying, uh, what is the formulation? So, something about uh, in yeah. good times and bad and so on. And it's, right. uh, um, you're so really not. You part. Yes, exactly. Uh, that becomes uh, a whole different story if you have a million year perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I like there was a science fiction novel I read where what happened was both partners would create an idealized version of the other and like. Go with that instead. Oh. So. Yes. I, I mean, there must be science fiction stories uh, about, uh, like, you could call it a sex bot apocalypse, where, <laughs> yeah. where people stop reproducing because they are no longer interested in other humans because they have better AI friends. I think that is going to be a huge issue. I, I, and I think it's one that'll be politically salient, where we're, we're going to have, you know, these very good-looking video characters that will be talking to you and will understand you at a deep level, mm -hmm. better than any other human could. I mean, I think that's what these language models are going to get very good at through human feedback, is getting you to really, really like them. And I, I, I could see an epidemic of, like, you know, 16-year-olds falling in love with these AI models and there's political will to stop that. So somehow I have great difficulties in, in thinking of myself as susceptible to sufficiently 
advanced AI uh, pl playing uh, uh, nice, lovely characters uh, in this way. But I realize that uh, if other humans are susceptible, intellectually, I understand that uh, I must be uh, susceptible as well, but it's kind of hard to, to imagine. Well, as a test, I mean, before you were married when you were younger, did you ever find yourself um, thinking of after a movie or a book, like, oh, God, I wish this character were real. That would be the perfect partner and just fantasizing. I, I wish I could, you know, have this person as my partner, a purely fiction, a character you knew was fictional. Um, the I don't remember. Maybe not this particular thought, but I have been uh, emotionally, emotionally attached uh, to fictional characters like uh, Luke Skywalker at some <laughs> point, for instance, but I didn't want to marry him. Okay. Well, I, yeah, so that's interview. I mean, being emo if you can get emotionally attached to a character that's fictional, and then we're going to have characters that will be talking to you and understanding you. Yes. That, I mean, I'm sure you were much younger when you got emotionally attached to Luke Skywalker. Yeah, but, I was um, like 10. Yeah. Um, but, I think given that people are, are capable of that or just the, the idea, you know, this stereotype of like, you know, a, a rock star and there are people screaming and, you know, saying, I love you, even though you, you, you know, that, you know, the person will never doesn't care at all about you. Mm -hmm. That, that kind of thing we can, we can do that. Are people getting emotionally into football players or, you know, we, we can, we can be drawn we can be drawn and really want to be with and really identify with fictional or, or real people that will never really interact with us. So our brains are capable of that. And then if you've got the market pushing you to create these AI avatars where they want you to like them. I, mean, I can see a future where you know, these are free and you pay for it by it will occasionally try to sell you stuff. So there'll be the Pepsi avatar that talks to you and 90% of the time it's optimized to get you to like it and then 10% of the time it's trying to get you to drink Pepsi. Oh, wow. But given the enormous social consequences potentially here, yeah. don't you think that this is an area that uh, uh, we should expect to be regulated somehow? Um, or will regulation yeah. always be one step behind? Because No, I think it will. I think there'll be parents are like, Oh my God, my daughter's fallen in love with a computer program. I want grandchildren. This is not good. And then there will be efforts to regulate, just like there is now in the U.S. to regulate TikTok. And of course, the way the, the other analogy is with porn, there's always desire to regulate that. I mean, uh, parents nowadays seem totally incapable of. Uh, preventing their children from from being sucked into their telephones. Uh, yeah, uh, in various and there, ways. there is discussion about that, and there are that's something politicians are sort of taking seriously. I could see that this is it. It would just seem so much worse that if your kid really is in love with a, with an avatar. Yeah, that's just that's so maladapted. It would seem. Yeah. But it could be the avatars are so good that we all fall in love with them. Right? And uh, maybe if you look at it uh, from a purely hedonic perspective, 
that would be a wonderful, wonderful future. But it seems like one that we don't want anyway because of reasons having to do with authenticity and uh, meaning of life and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other side to this, though, is that the AIs will understand emotion and human interaction better than we do, and they'll probably be able to train us to be better at connecting with other people. So you, you could imagine just, you know, both of us are married and we, we there are AIs that are monitoring our interactions with our spouses and then it gives us advice. Hey, you know, when you said this, you talked about this, your wife was really, really bored. You didn't realize that, but she was really bored after about 30 seconds. But when you said this other thing, she smiled and that made her happy. And, you know, we, we, we could be getting that feedback and we could become better at dealing with each other. This could be really great, but... Isn't there a risk that that would be ruined uh, by the fact that we know that all the great things that the partner does is just stuff that they have been instructed to do by the AI? It doesn't come truly from their heart? Well, but it's the part of like doing stuff they like. Like I don't get flowers at all like most guys, but I know that women, like my wife included, really like them. Yeah. So I don't think it's like, I give her flowers for Valentine's Day. I don't think it's like, oh, God, he doesn't like flowers. He's doing this. It's like it's even more he given that he does this isn't this really isn't for him. He's not giving mm -hmm. me these flowers because he likes looking at them. It's in some ways it's more meaningful. Right. And I actually I want to take back my previous argument because uh, I don't want to be to claim that things I do don't count if. I have learned them from somewhere. I think learning is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, um, especially for younger people, too. I mean, it could be giving social skill guidance to younger people, helping them better connect. Yeah. And I you know, I don't know if that which which will win out, but um, okay. So um, I guess we'll be talking for about an hour. Do you have anything you want to add uh, to wrap up? Um. Maybe we should say something about the intuition that many people say, seem to have in the AI debate that uh, uh, GPT is uh, just uh, a glorified autocomplete and uh, they, they exhibit behavior that superficially looks like intelligence, but it's not true intelligence. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's either humans are that way and we're not really thinking or GPT is. I mean, it's it's famous. The professors are giving it their exams and it's getting, you know, B's to A's. So if our students are able to think, so is this. Yeah. And and when when you hear more specific arguments uh, about uh, GPT not really being intelligent, I have yet to hear an argument that uh, does not apply uh, with uh uh, small modifications uh, to humans. I yeah, definitely. I, I strongly agree. I mean, what I mean is like, you know, if you, you ask it something slightly differently that it's encountered, it'll mess up. But students do that. That's how you test students. You you give them, here's the problem set question. I'll put a little twist in and half will miss it. That's what yeah. humans are like. Yes. Yes. And, you know. <laughs> yes. I've had conversations with colleagues actually pointing to a, a conversation with GPT-4 on mathematics. And they say this shows that, that GPT-4 doesn't really understand mathematics. And I ask, but uh, if you compare this to 
first year university students. How does it do? Oh, it's better than them, of course. <laughs> and I think that that should count as human level intelligence. I, I no, I agree. I think if five years ago we said, what what sort of a a general intelligence that's around human level. Describe what it would take for a program to reach that. I think we'd be describing things that GPT has. And yeah, so the goalposts are, are moving quite fast here. Yeah, we we want to be special and yeah. And just um, the impl- oh, go on. And maybe we are in some way, but it's 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 getting harder and harder to see what it actually is. Yeah. I mean, we learned in the 1990s that uh, uh, being able to play chess uh, is not the quintessential human capability. Uh, and and since then, and especially in the last few years, uh, we have uh, lost more and more of our uniqueness. Yeah, if, if AIs couldn't be humans at chess, despite if, say, people put a lot of effort into making an AI beat any human and that couldn't happen... We'd all be pointing to that to say, oh, look, this shows humans have this unique creativity and intelligence that computers can't match because they can't beat us at chess. Mm. But the fact they can beat us at chess, we just say, oh, that's nothing. That's just a yeah. confined mm. little game that doesn't mean very much. And Yes. Oh, I, there's actually one final question I want to ask you. Sure. And that's, uh, do you think that uh, an AI takeover where uh, humanity is uh, extinguished and AI goes on to populate the universe. Do you think that that is necessarily bad? Or could it be that if if the AIs are sentient and with great capacity for, for happiness and meaningfulness and so on, it could actually be a good event? Um. I agree. If they are sentient and can be happy, then yeah, then the universe still has value. Although, of course, I'm sure you probably agree. We we don't know that will happen and AIs don't need to be sentient to take over. But we also, of course, have to give weight to other civilizations out there. Yeah. I mean, if the solution to the Fermi paradox is there's lots of sentient life on lots of planets, but it's hard to industrialize, then the AI we create could go out and wipe out trillions of civilizations. That could be mm. most of the moral cost of what we're doing yes. is we, we yeah. exterminate life on a truly grand scale throughout the universe. Yeah. But should we expect those uh, other civilizations to be different uh, from ours? I mean, maybe if our civilization turns into a robot civilization, we should expect the same thing to happen throughout the universe? Uh, yes, it, it could be there's something that that our ability to do like high enough math or science that's could be what makes us special compared to other civilizations i i don't i'm just i'm just guessing yeah, yeah. or maybe the norm is like the equivalent of ants or bees take over and there's one queen that rules and they're able to handle ai risks much better than we are because yeah. there's there's not an arms race because the the natural order is their insects compete one takes over and maintains control forever. Yeah. And much as I enjoy these uh, detached discussions about what would be good and what would be bad for, for the universe as a whole, I still have a soft spot for humanity. I, I, I want us to, to survive. 
I mean, yeah. even I expect uh, I, like most people in history, they eventually died and I will probably die too. But uh, it would be a comfort to know that humanity continues and, and very, very sad if it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And I, I do think if we were extinguished, it'd probably be something that has, we would assign no moral value, even if we fully understood it. Mm. Yeah. Well, this we both agree the situation isn't hopeless. So. No, we should try working further on, on finding ways out of this uh, difficult situation we're in. Yeah. Yeah, definitely agree. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, thank you. I, I appreciate your time. and um, I enjoyed it, even yeah. though the topic is uh, difficult. And, uh, yeah. and um, it's always uh, a pleasure, pleasure to exchange ideas uh, with uh, a smart person like you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. Okay. okay. All right. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Have a good time. Okay.